It's time for a new evolution in raising golfers, one that doesn't involve headaches, tears, or heading down the path of unknown. Whether you're trying to introduce children to the game of golf, help them play competitively, or play at a collegiate level, you're in the right place. This show is for any parent, player, or coach who wants to build a better team at home and on the golf course. This is the Raising Golfers Podcast. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a fantastic week. I'll tell you what, I have been enjoying some fun games both indoors and recently at the driving range with my family, playing some golf games. And I just love games generally. I love to play games with friends, with my kids, with everyone. And I really like to implement games in my coaching. But after this episode, I have a feeling that I'm going to have to step up my game in implementing games in my lessons and also with my family. This week's episode, we have Richard Franklin, the founder of Discover Golf. It is your job, right, to satisfy the goal structure of this game, not satisfy the aesthetically pleasing swing habits that I espouse. Your job is to get from point A to point B and the circuitous route you're gonna take with the rule structure and the randomness and the chance and the player interaction. Those are all things that are are designed intentionally to inspire and invite you to be creative and adaptive and then give you that sense of agency. He has coached golf for over 10 years and he's made a full circle in his journey of golf coaching from coaching adults, junior golfers, elite players, and now he's all the way back to junior golfers in the developmental stage. His programs are built on a play to learn coaching philosophy that will inspire junior athletes to earn points set their own goals, and collaborate with friends on a game quest. Discover Golf exceeded 100 training facilities worldwide and just might be the thing that we have all been looking for. In today's episode, Richard will break down the psychology of the mind to help us better understand how we learn and are motivated to enjoy golf through play. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Travis, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited for this chat and uh, it's a little bit overdue. I know we've been trying to organize this conversation now for a while, but I'm happy that we got connected. And today's topic, we're going to talk about something that you posted on your Facebook profile, and that was junior golf is at a crossroad. And you talked about two different points. So you said one direction is basically to go in the direction of more data, more comparisons, levels, testing, and the other is emotional experience and play. Now, before we get into that, I want to know more about your professional history because I'm quite curious the path that you've gone on that's led you to this point. So take us back to when you started coaching golf and lead us up to where you are now. Yeah, thanks very much. So it's an interesting question. It's a good one. Um, And and I brought it up on the Facebook thread because it's, um, I think it's at the crux of what we're trying to help coaches with, trying to give coaches a different perspective. And I feel like I have a unique lens on this because getting now into my history, I've seen it and done it and been immersed in it, coaching that is, from really both perspectives. Uh, So very quick snapshot of my history. Um, As a short-term playing professional, um, I was a few years leading to that. And then my brief stint on the Canadian tour and a couple other mini tours, uh, I was working with Mac O'Grady and 
other, let's call it disciples of the golfing machine, which I would say was, you know, one of the very early sort of pre-measurable taxonomies, if you will, trying to break down and compartmentalize how the swing worked and really just trying to have a very analytical approach to the swing and understanding the geometry of impact and yada, yada. So I always was an appreciator of at least what I felt they were trying to do. You know, as, as a instructor, you know, once told me it's always going to be hard, but it's better that it's not a mystery. And th that's a romantic notion. <laughs> I think it's a, um, it, it's a, it's a worthy cause. I think all instructors or people that are working even with kids, and we're going to get into play and early childhood development, I, I think it's really important that it's like a module, right? It, it's a it's a discipline in which you should investigate and learn. I think we're going to talk about its shortcomings here potentially momentarily. But anyway, working with Mac and Golfing Machine and then coming out of a short-term you know, professional playing career, I was coaching basically with sort of Morad style teachings that, that I had received and was really interested in trying to have some quantifiable data around, you know, some of the stuff that I was thinking about and coaching. And so, uh, you know, was a very early flight scope owner and uh, was using an eight sensor AMM motion capture and spent all of my time, money, energy, focus on speaking with guys like Rob Neal and spent a bunch of time with Dr. Kwan and Michael Jacobs, Brian Manzella, some guys that I think are pioneers in, you know, trying to have this data-driven approach. And so come full stop, eight years later, 10 years later, you know, I, I'm the play and games guy in junior golf. And so I think a lot of people that, you know, are just starting to see my presence as a game designer that maybe haven't heard or seen my name for six, seven, eight years, you know, I get the comment from people like, wait, weren't you the guy doing the KVEST video with Chip Beck that I saw on YouTube. And yeah, I was that guy. And like I said, there's a time and place for that. We're going to, I think this is an interesting, uh, an interesting through line that we can discuss. So I'll just, I'll stop there for a second. If you want me to touch on something else, or I'll just, I'll keep going through it. Well, I think one thing I'd like to touch on, because I would say I've gone through a lot of the similar things that you've learned and courses and from the technical side of the game as far as being a golf coach. And I would think I'm heading a lot more in the direction of what you've already done and what you've already changed in your professional career. And, you know, this podcast has a lot of parents that listen in and, you know, for right. golf coaches that coach hour by hour and, you know, spend a lot of time on technique, there are coaches that absolutely love it and it does fit certain styles of coaching, mm -hmm. but there are other people like I believe yourself and I can say for sure myself that think there's another way to coach the game of golf, especially to children. And for me, at least it, it was beating down on me as far as the hour by hour technical lessons and just thinking that there must be another way to enjoy this as a coach and make my students enjoy it even more. I'm just curious, did you have some type of moment like that as well in your professional career? Yeah. I mean, I, I call it my Jerry Maguire moment where, um, <laughs> You know, I, I kind of had a little bit of a breakdown in that. So Golf Magazine, I forget how many years ago it was, called me the youngest in the young coach category, the techiest golf instructor in the country. You know, two years earlier, I would have been very proud of that and still am to a certain degree. I mean, no, like I said, no regrets. I mean, I think it's super important, you know, as we start getting into constraint-based coaching and play and games, uh, the misnomer 
is that that's either a cop-out or a soft science or a less rigorous approach to coaching. And that actually could not be further from the truth. You know, as the quote says, play is, is very serious. And I think that's just a really important notion that hopefully I can do a decent job of articulating just how rigorous the study of play is and to be a purveyor of quality play experiences that are meaningful and emotionally resonant and improve technical skills all in in, in one full swoop. Very difficult job, and we can get into that. But getting back to sort of my breaking moment was... Look, a couple different perspectives, one that you brought up, right? So I, I was the guy doing 14 hours a day, private after private after private after private, and look, making good money um, and giving very good golf lessons, data-driven, uh, I think well-executed, um, getting to the core issues, discussing sort of peripheral issues that the, the, the client at hand may or may not want to address and why that would be a supplementation but always going back to sort of the core concerns, you know, trying to map out and forecast how different practice protocols, you know, would, would cause certain things to happen, which then would cascade into other things. And, and really feeling like I was doing a very good job of, you know, blending the technology with the personal experience. There's, there's a, always a, a modicum of bedside manner when you're coaching, especially in affluent areas. So anyway, you get to the point where you say, okay, you're, you're, you're doing a what you believe to be your best possible job in that hour, but really what difference are you making? You know, are these people interested and motivated in, you know, really changing their movement patterns and doing what it's going to take to get to the next level? Or is this just a sort of five diamond service, right? Where I'm, I'm just the concierge entertaining, you know, various hedge fund managers on the north side of Chicago and giving them a really good show and wrong with being a a show person right but if i'm going to take that route well then why don't i bundle that inside a different puzzle and that puzzle that was increasingly getting my attention was working with kids because on one side i'm trying to articulate how pelvic sway graphs and the three dimensions of wrist movement were, were translating into the geometry of the ball Uh, you know, the collision at impact and, you know, trying to spin this ball of yarn for the client. I'm saying, I'm doing a pretty good job over here. And then, you know, I've got this summer camp thing, thing that is starting to grow, but I'm not very good at it. And why does Sally look at me like I'm, I'm crazy. And why, why does Johnny always spin his club when I'm trying to set up the putting drill and like being super interested and, and empathetic to like, man, I'm sucking with these kids and saying, you know what, um, this is a this is my puzzle. I just had a I had that moment. And I said, a I'm not very good at this, and I don't like being bad at something that you know is in my purview. And b the opportunity getting back to what does this mean long term? What kind of real resolute change can I make? The two of those together, where it's like, wow, I can really be impactful in somebody's life. And I need to learn a whole lot more about it, you know, so then it became an intellectual pursuit, which, which is, I think, what was the catalyst for all the AMM and the speaking with Tyler Farrell and Rob Neal and and trying to seek out the experts in this industry. All of it was to satiate my intellectual curiosity. But then when I (laughs) just looked right there and I saw these kids and what does it mean to, you know, 
develop motor skills? And then what does it mean to just learn at, at a more holistic level? And what is this developmental psychology and behavioral psychology? And oh, what are games? And it's like, whoa, there's a way richer vocabulary uh, around that kind of thinking. So that that got me down the rabbit hole. Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's it's quite the journey that you went on. And I think what you did, I think a lot of coaches would like to do. But the problem is, is that us as humans, we all struggle with identity change. And, you know, what you had before was people saw you as this technical golf coach, right? Yep. Then you realize that there's this other part of golf that actually you think you might even enjoy more. And you started going down that rabbit hole, like you said. And I'm heading that direction as well as a professional but it can be tough to change your identity going from the technical golf coach to now this person that just wants to, what well, looks like just wants to play and have fun with the kids and create games and an atmosphere and an environment that the kids can thrive in. So, you know, we'll touch on your business a little bit later, but I would just say, well done, Matt. And I mean, I think that's very cool. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I think what we'll get into is, you know, I, I've, I feel like the luckiest person in the world because the, the study of play and the study of games and in uh, all of the overlap with, uh, you know, there's strands of anthropology in there, there's strands of philosophy in there, there's behavioral psychology, all of this stuff, you know, what, what I realized now looking back, it filled in so much of the knowledge gaps that I had, not just with coaching, but just about how to see the world and how to interpret, you know, how I saw myself and, you know, my place relative to the sort of mission statement I had professionally and personally and spiritually. And I mean, so there was a lot that un that got unearthed just in my own personal development, you know, in my seeking to help others. And, you know, part of that, getting back to your point, was this willingness to always say that I can be anybody that I want to be at any time that I am not defined by the polos that I wear or the fact that I'm on the golf course or that, you know, I'm not beholden to the cultural norms of this game because I, like all people, you know, have, you know, I'm a kaleidoscope. I, I, I'm in different contexts. I'm a different person and I have a lot of different things and I hold uh, opposing thoughts uh, at the same time in my brain and right so life is full of these paradoxes and i'm willing to say that hey when i'm with kids i'm this person and when i'm with you i'm this person and i try not to pigeonhole myself and i think just this investigation of how people um, are liberated through play just has been profoundly important in my own personal development yeah no that's cool i mean i think a lot of people would be able to relate to that and i think all of us have a little bit in this where we adapt and act differently in different situations. And uh, yeah, I totally agree. Let's go back to what we opened with talking about junior golf is at a crossroad. So you got these two points. So let's talk about the first one, which is one points or one way points to more data, more comparisons, levels and testing. And I would like to know what positives you think that point might have. Okay, well, let me let me set this up with a little bit of context. Five, six years ago, and I just, if people want to check out a post I just had on Facebook on my personal Richard Franklin page, the title of the piece was The Death of Gamification. And so gamification is a really interesting phenomenon. It was an interesting trend that's now petering out, thankfully. But five, six years ago, you saw in the Google Trends, this wave of 
searches for gamification. And basically this coincided with, call it the quantified self movement, right? This idea, and, and that's not going anywhere, right? The whoops and the whatever, all of the trackable health tech that everybody wears and the pedometers and all of that stuff, right? People trying to take measurement of their life and better, better themselves through data. But what there was this interesting overlap where really people in the enterprise space said, okay, like if we can track performance, well, then we can have, you know, KPIs, right? So what are the, what are the data points that you have to reach so that we get sort of critical return on our investment of you, uh, lower middle management guy or gal. So, you know, like, let's take the example of like, you're responsible for doing cold calls, right? Which is a, a job that nobody's going to find intrinsically motivating. You kind of get intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation here as, a, as an overlap. And um, we know you don't like it, but if suddenly we put your name on a board with how many calls you've converted, well, then we're giving you feedback, right? So that's a feedback loop. You know, you just closed a sale, up on the board you go. Okay, well, we can go one step further. We can now rank you relative to others. Oh, okay, well, we know humans are driven by sort of tribalism and social pressures and okay now we can maybe tap into your sense of trying to dominate the tribe oh and then well we can further incentivize either like you know top performer oh why don't we do daily top performers or oh we could even get more granular call it the the power hour what's the record for most amount of cold calls you've converted in an hour and so layering in badges, rewards, all of these, these are all remnants. These are all, that's a perfect way to say it really. Though These are remnants of games, right? These, the, the, there is a gameful thinking now in adding more and more theater to the core proposition, which is let's measure, rank, and then sort of create this like linear trajectory of improvement over time. And it sounds fantastic, right? It sounds fantastic. Oh, well, people are motivated by things and people are made motivated by rankings and people love games. What could go wrong? Right. And so what happened is now you see this is pervasive in all walks of life, but we'll just, we'll keep the, the microscope on junior golf. And so this has now become the gold standard in formalized junior golf training, right? Which is, it's either a badge system, color-coded, you know, sort of like TPI era style, which again is one form of gamification, kind of martial arts style thinking there, but it's it's a tradition in this sort of gameful lens. And then you have the Op 36 and the US Kids style, which is basically taking it one step further where there's clear benchmarks and thresholds and there's a level up and there's points and there's comparisons. And so I was in love with this thinking and I uh, invested all of my time, all of my money, all of my uh, bandwidth into trying to create a formalized system of points and levels. And I took it upon myself to, getting back to what I said earlier, was to look at it from two sort of maybe contrarian views, like the gamification people that were having, you know, success, quote unquote, with uh, nudging people, which is sort of a behavioral psycho uh, psychology term, you know, these um the book nudge, you know, the, uh, some of Richard Thaler's work out of University of Chicago, interesting ways in which um, people make decisions based on uh, the way the environment presents information. So choice architecture, all kinds of stuff. It's, it's fascinating work. 
But then on the other side, looking at intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, and if you basically make uh, something that somebody thought was already kind of a creative outlet or interesting just by itself, uh, and now it's worth something, you run the risk of making it transactional, and therefore it's not a creative outlet. It's just something to be done to get something else. Mm. So then there's sort of the sort of uh, the cousin of that is is Csikszentmihalyi's work with flow, which is this idea that the the best sort of optimal human experiences are these autotelic experiences, which means just doing things for the sake of doing them. Right. So I wanted to look mm -hmm. at it from both perspectives and like there's kernels or large chunks of truth, obviously, on both sides, trying to make sense of that. So I built this program where I thought, OK, I'm going to give the coach and the student total freedom to assign. Uh, this is all digital. Assign themselves what it took to level up. So like if you wanted your level one to be, hey, I want to make a par and that feels like a level up to me, then that was your level. And if you wanted to make a hundred level program because you would rather not grind for months to level up, you'd rather level up every other day because that was more interesting to you. So I created this like giant open white canvas that I thought did a nice job of, you know, leveraging some of the principles around gamification, but was always empathetic to you know, the motivation profile of each student and really what their um, ideal experience would be. So I, you know, this, this, this has been on my mind for years and years and years and years, and then come full circle, you know, I tossed that digital program um, in a dumpster, uh, lit it on fire and walked away from it because even, even the things that it was espousing to do, I still felt like it was manipulative and I, I think that's probably the best word to, to say it was that it was seeking to serve my ends um, as a coach primarily and still not being true to really trying to have the student at hand, you know, be the sort of ringleader of their experience. And so now I make games and they're all analog and uh, we, we can go down that rabbit hole if you want to as well. But that's uh, that's that's some context. Well, it's a very interesting point because, like you said, in context, if you think about how everything is now with apps on our phones, you know, if you want to lose weight, if you want to run more, if you want to do more workouts throughout the day, um, yep. it's all based on, like you said, gamification. And I would agree junior golf's that way as well. And I'm guilty of doing those things and tracking results and datas and leaderboards and all of those things and having levels. But, you know, touch a little bit more on how the junior golfer feels being in that type of environment and you know what are some of the negatives that they might have like i said there are kernels of truth on right. both sides there right now if you're a junior golf parent listening to this there is a very good chance that you have one two twelve twenty fifty even students that actually love that model mm -hmm. right so I would classify those kids as golf kids. It is culturally relevant to them. That's another you know, huge point, right? Their grandparents play, their parents play. They had a club in their hand when they were three years old. They're physically sort of attuned to it, right? They've, they've uh, genetically or from a background of multiple sports, they, they've had success at it you know, from an early stage. You wrap all that together, that kid is going to love the challenge and the demand of a let's call it golf centric, right? Progression heavy training mm -hmm. model. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. This gets to my broader point about the crossroads that we're at. I have been trying to speak as clearly and hopefully as passionately as possible about the day that I saw coming, which I believe Top Golf and Simulator Golf and spin-offs of golf have long, long, long showcased is that human beings are literally like as thirsty as you can imagine for stick and ball experiences, right? Golf-like experiences that are more predicated on the social environment that they're in and less about the long-term outcomes. And we happen to find ourselves amidst a global pandemic where kids are literally you know, at least when it was in the heat of it, and I know in China, geez, it's, it's, it was even more severe, not able to go outside, not able to socialize. And then as things started to come back online, football, soccer, basketball, uh, indoor activities out. So golf found itself in this place where you had more and more and more and more kids that were not golf kids. And it was like all of my predictions coming to fruition all at one time. And I said, there are going to be golf coaches that are prepared for this, that are ready to leverage the best piece of green grass in a 10 mile radius and give kids really important, enriching social experiences that let them learn at their own pace, learn how they want to play, have fun, you know, dig deeper into the play experience for the sake of just playing and nothing else. And, you know, our program in uh, Lake Forest, Illinois, we saw literally historic numbers by 300% this last fall. Um, It was just incredible, the response that we had in the outpouring of parents being appreciative and being ready with a staff and a culture and a mindset that I just would not have been ready for if it was who can make par from the farthest distance. So that's sort of some real world perspective uh, on the thing. No, that's, that's very interesting. You know, one thing I always think about, and I know I shouldn't because I sh- it's the kids game and the kids are playing golf, but you know, us parents, you know, we want to be involved. We want to make sure our kids are signed up for the best opportunity, the best program so that our kids can, hopefully enjoy the program, but also, you know, parents want to see some type of improvement. That's just the nature of what parents are thinking. But when kids come to programs like this and they're going to go through these emotional experiences and just play, how do you talk to parents and make parents understand how important play is? I'll just, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you just very, very quickly. Not, I'm, I, I just want to push back on one, one thing. I think even the rhetoric of all parents want to see improvement potentially, but it might not be improvement of the metric that you're thinking. And look, this, this may seem like a fringe concept to some, and this may be breaking down some walls. And I try to do that with obviously our culture and our parents is that we are trying to repurpose or reimagine the golf experience, right? So we always talk about it. it's a stick in a ball right? After that, everything is open for interpretation. I get parents that tell me, right, that my child now is more energized, is, is, is happier, is more social, 
is looking people in the eye, is just more engaged with their world, more confident. And the, of the 700 kids we saw this summer, I would say that getting back again to my initial point, there's about 50 that want to know what to expect in the next year or the next two years in terms of development golf-wise, you know, what, what we can look from the horizon for tournaments. The other 650, I promise you, I promise you, the, the, the wellness of their child in an environment now, in, in COVID times and post-COVID times, we haven't even got into the debilitating state of screens and social media with these kids and how deathly afraid parents are of the suck vortex that is Instagram and Snapchat. And that, that's, a, that's a really, really scary negative thing in young people's lives and parents if, if you can bring to them two hours of really wholesome, outdoor, socially driven play away from the screen, I promise you, they're not interested in improvement. Mm. That, that has been my experience. Right. No, I totally agree. And you, you obviously can't base your whole program off the 50 parents compared to the 650 parents that don't actually care about that, right? You shouldn't. Right. No, that's very interesting. So Let's talk then a little bit more about some of the emotional experience and play parts where you introduce some yep. of those things into your programs and again, touch again more on why those things are so important. Well, so, I mean, just biologically, right? I mean, we are, our brains, you know, at its most sort of primal origin, you know, we are seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, right? So like if, if that's your sort of baseline thinking, which is like, how would I encourage people to feel good and not have pain? So like, where do you want to start? Like what causes pain in our kids? Well, how about you put balls down on, on a dusty driving range and have all of the kids start hitting balls then because it's purely based on the physical dexterity that you bring to bear one to two to three, four kids are having success and everybody else is, literally out there sucking then why don't you take the kids that are sucking and put your hands on them and tell them what they're doing wrong then why don't you just by nature of all the kids that are doing great shower them with praise give them more attention and then go back to telling the other kids what they're doing wrong you want to cause some pain you got it that's the perfect formula <laughs> yeah you, you painted that picture very well it's relatable and of course I think a lot of people have been guilty of that, including myself. And, and I and I know what some people are thinking. It's like, man, this guy's like, this is participation culture and everybody gets a ribbon. It's like, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is having some fundamental perspective taking is why don't you put your eyes through the, you know, put yourself through the lens of an eight-year-old that's there for the first time. This game is ridiculously difficult. Not setting these kids up for success is, it, it's, not, it's not participation trophy. It's not everybody wins. It's just good, empathetic, human first coaching. Um, there's that perspective. Okay, so now let's get into like, how do people feel good? Well, so like fun, right? Like play. These are the most overused or misunderstood words in junior golf, right? Because here, here is what junior golf coaches want to do. They want to be both, right? Well, we're going to get you making par from 300 yards in two years and mom and dad give me money for the next eight semesters and I'm going to give you detailed roadmap. 
but we're also the most fun and we love games and we play. And it's like, mm, okay, well, if you can do that simultaneously, good for you. You've put in literally 10 plus years of studying how fun and games and different personalities take to either texture. So, so good. But let's get into just really briefly sort of like the neurochemistry of fun, right? So dopamine, right? Which is often associated with feeling good. It's a anticipatory instinct. So if I'm, if I say, Travis, um, I want you to think about, you know, having some chocolate ice cream or you're on your couch and you're thinking about chocolate ice cream, mm -hmm. the amount of dopamine, the amount of feel good that you have in your brain is at its highest before the chocolate ice cream. It is the anticipation of how good that chocolate ice cream is going to be that spikes that dopamine in your brain, which mobilizes energy to your legs to get you off the couch to the ice cream to sit back down. It's true. The ice cream itself is not the thing. So now we could say, well, if fun is basically people reporting the sort of neuro, the current neurochemistry right in their brain, then they are reporting their anticipation of rewards. So what are rewards? Well, from a game perspective, you could say rewards are achieving sub goals, right? Within a bigger goal structure, that would be one lens. Uh, a reward could be a changing scope of strategy, a way in which your play changes the state of the game. So you could talk about how games create a sense of agency, right? And then you can even say, how about a layer of interaction where the player is doing things that clearly and abruptly change the trajectory of the whole game, right? That makes people feel good because they say, I'm about to do something and this thing is going to blow up Sally's strategy and she doesn't see it coming. I feel clever. I feel like I'm an agent of my environment. Hey, coach, this is really fun. Right. I'm here to tell you that hitting balls to Chipzilla or some blow up figure on the driving range in tic tac toe is it's it's fun from one perspective. Right. So let's take the giant gorilla on the driving range. Right. Like this is a fun first program. That's a fun. That's a fun thing. One time because it's novel. That's another dimension of fun is the newness of the thing that you're doing. Now, what's the problem with the gorilla? It's like, okay, on day two, maybe it's still got some juice. Travis, by day three, man, I already hit at the gorilla. What's next? You, anyone that knows kids knows like what's next. Right. Okay, so you also have a problem too because how much does a damn gorilla cost your program? What are you going to do? Next time it's going to be a, a, you know, a, a flying a saucer? You're going to have to keep upping the ante. So you need to, and this gets back to how important design is, right? You need to have really elegant design so that you can create conditions that, that have high replayability, that always offer something new for the player without literally crushing, you know, your, your budget. So there's the real, you know, there's the, the first foray into sort of the business take of this as well. It's very interesting. And it, it totally just makes me think about junior programs that I've run in the past 
and just what kids say and the feedback that you get from them constantly. And even just with my own, with my own oldest son, I mean, he's really excited about an activity or game. And then once you start playing it, it's like two minutes into it, he wants to go to the next one. Right. So he's always anticipating the next thing and what's the next activity and it needs to be better than the one before. So, you know, that, that's a really good way to say like, okay, um, how do you create the right amount of chance and randomness in your games? And so this, this hinges, I think also on philosophy, because, you know, I was talking before about how the study of games, you know, helped empower me and my perspective on, you know, the world at large and myself. And this idea of randomness and chance really struck a chord with me. If you look at the parallel between those that believe in more constraint-based approach, right? So just touch on this really quickly, right? Which is this idea that the coach, the coach's core proposition to the player and the families in this case is to create an environment, right? Which enhances the environmental cues of human stick ball target, right? In a sort of high fidelity way that allows the, the movement, the adaptive movement characteristics of the player at hand to emerge, right? So this is much more about, you know, intrinsic learning, right? Learning that that stems from the player rather than more of of an explicit approach, right? Which is, I'll just explain to you how this works. Um, And so if you espouse the first, right? Which is this constraint-based environmentally induced learning, you recognize the randomness, right? And the chaotic, relatively chaotic nature of that learning process which then de facto means it's nonlinear, right? That you're going to have natural, it's completely natural in the way that it works. You're going to have lows and highs and all kinds of different trend lines in your learning process. That's part of what it means to adapt. The other person that says, I can just force feed you how it works and we can put you on V1 and we can make you look like tiger in 2000 piece by piece by piece and get more consistent, more consistent, do it again, do it again, do it again, rote repetition. They're going to espouse a more linear progression. So you can see like at the sort of foundational level, why coaches would be in line with this leveled approach because it fits their model for how learning works, right? It's just, it's just a sheer amount of work over time equals progress. So you're, so you're not a constraint-based coach if you believe in this sort of linearity of development. So that's, I think that's an important point as well. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And one thing that I saw you talk on was you talked about kids needing to have some type of relatedness. And in addition, like you, you, started, yep. you started talking about a little bit of autonomy. Can you touch a little bit on that? And what exactly is it that kids need to be able to relate to that's so important in the learning process? Well, so self-determination theory, Ryan and DC's work, I mean, that should be like day one of I want to be a coach. Like once you proclaim that, that you should read that work first, right off the bat. What's the premise? I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. So self-determination theory basically posits that we're motivated by three things, which is a sense of competence, a sense of social relatedness, and a sense of autonomy. So I think what golf coaches do well is they say, I want my students to feel competent, right? I, I, there, if you're a junior golf coach, you, you almost by, by fact cannot be a bad person that's not trying to make people 
get better, right? I understand your core value proposition, and it's a good one. Trying to get better at something is good. There's there's never been a human that doesn't want to get better at life, right? Everyone, whatever they're doing, how do I get better at it? The problem is that it's it's within context of two other things, which is it's it's okay to get good at something or it's great to get good at something, but it's better if it's relatable to your peer group because now I can share it. Now I have a sort of cultural reference, right? So like if like if golf didn't exist to the to the scope that it did now and it was a very fringe thing, still has the same rules, still has the same everything, it would not be as motivating to get good at it because it's not relatable to others. Mm. So there's a relatedness component to motivation. And then the third piece, which is often neglected, is that it's not just good enough to get good at something. Human beings want to get good at it their own way. We want to be the storytellers of our hero's journey. There, nobody wants to feel coerced. Nobody wants to feel like they're under somebody's thumb. Nobody wants to feel like I'm doing level one shipping drill because it comes from the dark overlords in some boardroom that insist that a 80% accuracy rate inside a six foot ring is what level one chipper should be. That is not compelling from a core motivational aspect. Would you recommend even beyond golf coaches, but parents, should they understand this concept and at home try to implement some of these things to help their kids if they want to practice or just play any games or any other sports? 100%. I mean, if, if, you, if you have a child that's encouraged, and, and, then, and then so we can look at you know the wave that came out of growth mindset, right? This was the uh, pop psych du jour, what, a couple years ago? And I've got some problems with growth mindset, but one of the one of the interesting parts about this was its growth mindset is somebody's willingness to try alternative strategies right in the face of adversity they're willing to try other things right so like if you just said okay that's obviously true and people trying to do it their own way and become geniuses which is what i think happens when you encourage people to seek their own solutions any well not any definitely not any games are an incredible medium right to to give permission to the to the student the junior in this in this case to say it is your job right to satisfy the goal structure of this game not satisfy the aesthetically pleasing swing habits that i espouse your job is to get from point a to point b and the circuitous route you're going to take with the rule structure and the randomness and the chance and the player interaction, those are all things that are, are designed intentionally to inspire and invite you to be creative and adaptive and then give you that sense of agency. It's This is not something that the parent can just say like, hey, Johnny, like just go out there and like, you know, do it however you want to do it, man. It's like, that's not good either right? Because they're not butting up against anything specifically, right? And then given a couple choices, which then they can pick the one that's most meaningful to them. So this is why I keep going back to all of these, the conduit that, you, that all of these virtues go through, 
is it is design and it's quality design in its games because all of these things coaches can believe it and they, maybe there's some parents that are nodding their head with what i'm saying and like like and believe you know some of these these concepts but just saying that or putting it on a bumper sticker or telling it to your kids i mean that's just vibration in the wind man it's nothing's going to get done you, you got to have design with your coaching programs and your company discover golf do you try to implement all of those things into every single lesson absolutely and this and this gets to my earlier point which is like I know I had a coach tell me earlier this summer, it's like, you know, I was telling another coach about Discover Golf and that how happy we were with it. And the other coach said, oh, you do Discover Golf. Well, like you're not coaching then. Like, and that's unfortunate. I mean, I can understand again from, uh, you know, a far off perspective, like when coaches see like, oh, these kids are just like running around and having fun. And maybe you don't think there's a place for fun or childlike energy on the golf course. And that's, you know, that's your own bag. That's fine. Um, but to say it's not coaching, I mean, again, I, I, I think this style of coaching, I mean, to, to design a game from scratch and do the art direction and understand the kind of uh, emotional buttons it's going to press and why it's going to press them and when it's going to press them and to try to walk the delicate line between what I would call a railroad system, which is giving you clear direction to what you should do next versus sandbox which is a little bit more open and interpretive and the pitfalls of like ambiguous decision-making versus too tightly constrained decision-making, taking the perspective of the child the whole way, testing it, iterating it, iterating it again, changing the rule structure one more time, figuring out the, the medium that it's going to go through. Is it going to be 30 mil styrene? Is it going to be four mil core plus? How are we going to bring this alive in terms of like presentation? Like, this is a this is a science that gets boiled down to a feeling. It's really it's a magic trick, man. It's it's games are just some of the most amazing things that that you can ever imagine once you start digging into it. Oh, I believe it. And I think one thing that's often overlooked like what you touched on, not only just with golf coaches, but also parents of kids who play golf is that the importance of the environment and the community that those kids are going into is huge and it's overlooked way too often. And just because let's just say a quote unquote golf coach isn't hands on with the kid, or like you said, going back to the kids that aren't doing well or sucking, they're not going over to help them and tell them what they're doing wrong. If there's an environment that the kids can come to every single time that's safe and that they can thrive in, they're actually going to grow and progress much faster than you can possibly imagine. In my opinion, I'm going to, I'm going to give you really a specific example. So junior golf, full swing, where dreams go to die, right? We're going to get 50 kids in a session, 42 of them really can't put the face on the ball. And here we go. What are we going to do about it? Right? This is the proposition we all face. So uh, a game I made last year, it's called cacao nibbies. It's about, and so this, this is what also is interesting. Like how thematical is your game, right? So like abstraction versus deeply thematical, how much does it matter? Well, if you're somebody that's uh, into fantasy games, right, or likes sort of immersive experiences or, or has a good sense of imagination, like theme matters. So I tell the kids, and it's all shown in the art direction, that, that you're a burgeoning cacao magnate, right? So what you're trying to do is you're trying to do two things. You're trying to corner 
a percent, you know, like, so if you go to the store and you, and you're looking at chocolate and it says, this is 70%, right? 70% um, cacao, 80%. So you're trying to corner one of those markets, right? 40%, 90%. But then you also need to be mindful of where the market's going. Uh, two years ago, dark chocolate was really hot. Now it's not so much. So I like to, I like to set the stage, right? This is the hook. This is the promise of the game or the theme of the game, right? So here's how it plays. We have FlightScope Mevos. I don't plug companies often. FlightScope Mevo, they don't, they don't pay me anything. I, I don't speak with the guys that often. That is a brilliant piece of equipment for junior golf. Uh, some say, well, it's not that accurate. Good. I like that it's sometimes a little quirky off the face because these are kids that can't put metal on the ball, right? So he, hit, he or she hits a shot. 37 yards. Kids like, this is awesome. I just hit it 37. So we're flipping the script, right? It's not about, you know, chunk whiff shanking it. Johnny, I told you, Johnny, you got to do the elbow thing. No, it's 37 yards. Good job, Johnny. Johnny then takes a magnet and he puts it or she puts it on 37 yards, which is on this big game board, Discover Golf Game, Cacao Nibbies. Cool. Let me say, Johnny, there's a couple things going on here, buddy. We're going to hit first, and then we're going to have the nibby roll phase. What's the nibby roll phase, Coach? Johnny, I'm so glad you asked. After five shots, we're going to hand you five cacao nibbies. Then we're going to go to the top of the board, and we're going to go Planko-style drop. It's going to drop down the board, and it's going to be ricocheting and bouncing and bounding off of all the magnets that you guys placed, and it's going to go to a collection bin at the bottom. Each collection bin is going to have a number associated with 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and specialty. When one of those collection bins gets to five, that the global market has spoken. It is that, it is that brand of cacao that is most sought after. You need five out of 10 in that row to then win the game. So what that does, it does two things. One, Johnny can just go up there and whack it and just pray to get some metal on it. 37, 46, 52. Johnny's just every shot. He's, he's getting something. He's plugging it on the board. The nature of the cacao nibby is totally random, right? It's very hard to predict how it's going to bounce off the various magnets. And it's going to go in a collection bin, which is unpredictable. We just talked about this. The, the, the amount of chance and randomness that you have in a game does two things. Your son, as you said, always looking for something, something new, like all players. So last time, 40 filled up really quickly. This time, 70 did. So it just so happened that the player that was getting lucky, quote unquote, that filled up the 70 wins the game on the roll, right? So you have this two things going on. Every shot is a reward. And what do we know about rewards? It's the anticipation of reward that spikes dopamine. So Johnny literally has a better state from which movement solutions can come from, right? The, the research is very clear. Try to get the player's state in a position, right? Have them in a uh, psychologically and physically more stimulated state so that they can produce better movement solutions. You and I do better three hours after waking up after a cup of coffee than we do at 6.15 in the morning just waking up. It's true. The same is true for our players. If they are 
flooded with dopamine in anticipation of an upcoming reward, guess what's going to happen to their ball contact? It's going to improve. It's going to get better. And you didn't say anything. You created an environment that allowed their literal neurochemistry to support their, their in capital, their endeavor to put metal on to ball. Now, after cacao nibby, Johnny wins. Johnny is like, I do not believe what just happened. I came here thinking I'm not a golfer. You got these kids wearing polos. I feel out of place. And Johnny just took a legitimate victory. Sally over there has played for three years, says, you know what? That was a super fun game. Johnny, great job. That is also the elegance of game design, that the best player there didn't feel like they got clowned, right? If you put in chance, so coaches, okay, yeah, I'll do this thing. And then like at the end of the game, we'll flip a, uh, we'll, we'll roll a die. And if, if you get a four, you win. It's like, that's obviously coming down to a coin flip, which negates all physical prowess, right? Mm. So you have the best of both worlds. Johnny felt great, got a legitimate victory, but the players in the group that have been there for a couple of years, either A said that's legitimate or B, I don't care that that was sort of silly and random. That was just a lot of fun. And they did, Travis, they did in the course of that game as the 70 bin was filling up, they did have the opportunity to do what? Try to hit it exactly 71, try to hit it exactly 73 try to counter the randomness right of the falling nibby there was an opportunity there for the physically skilled to rise above the sort of randomness of the of the cacao nibby drop so everybody feels like hey that was a fair shake and that happens every single day in our programming and then so i'm sure you or somebody would say well when do you teach johnny it's like you know what after the game I might say something to Johnny, be like, hey, man, like, how does it feel? Like when you hit a when you hit a good shot, you know, what 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 does it feel like to you? Oh, it feels like this or this. Be like, OK, cool. Like, show me that, you know, or um, hey, you hit that really good shot at 47. Was there something different about that? Or, hey, Johnny, like if we were to play this again, do you think it would be helpful for you to hit more like 70s and 80s and 90s? Be like, yeah, coach, because like I, I couldn't get it over 50. Be like. You want me to show you something? So I'm asking, I'm trying to gain permission for Johnny to let me in. I'm not just going to say, hey, Johnny, let me tell you something, man. Next time you play account, we got to get you up to 70, man. That, that you know, like you, you got away with that one. No, man, if Johnny's just like, hey, coach, that's great. Can we go play King Putt? Chilling. Johnny, let's go play King Putt. I will wait for the time to get into what I think would be not only the most important thing to say to Johnny about his grip or whatever it may be. I'll make it minimally invasive. I'm not going to bog him down. I'm not going to have him go internal focus. And I want to net out to the greatest impact on his swing. So next time he plays cacao nibbies. Now, really quickly, sorry to keep going on. There's another point here. What I'm talking about with Johnny, about how I'm waiting, being patient, trying to access permission. This is long-term thinking, but think about it from a different perspective. It's only long-term because I'm taking care of the minute by minute. I thought with great detail how to create a game that gave everybody a chance, had the right amount of theme, had the right amount of chance, the right around randomness, pairing it with a, you know, a fairly inexpensive yet effective piece of technology. So putting all those pieces in place, environmentally building, so that I can control the minute by minute. Right. The greatest 
the greatest, greatest deficit that coaches have nowadays or, or that were put in was long-term athletic development models. That is such a poor place to start from. I never forget, I was at a TPI level two junior. Somebody says, it's the greatest thing ever. He's like, I have my next 10 years planned out. And I was 25. I said, shoot, that does sound pretty good. If you are thinking 10 years out and you're not thinking about minute three with Johnny, who can't put metal on the ball, then you're never going to have more than 50 kids in your program. Right. No, I think that's, you know, that was an excellent description of not only just your program at Discover Golf, but also just how we should educate kids and how to involve them and give them something to relate to. And like you said, autonomy and something interesting I heard was from a soccer coach once he mentioned that he would always do drills at the beginning of practice. And then at the end, maybe they could do a scrimmage and play. And his kids were just slowly but surely kind of deflating. Their interest was going away and he wasn't sure what was going on. And so one day he just said, okay, what is it you guys like best about practice? And almost all the kids said the scrimmage. So what he did was play first, right? So what he did was he had the scrimmage at the beginning of practice and he let it go on for whatever amount of time it needed to go on. And maybe it'd be most of the practice. But then at the end of that, if there was a situation where the kid wanted some help and he led the conversation or that maybe there was a drill in this case that they needed to run because of what they saw in the scrimmage, then he felt that it was a lot more relatable for the kids and the kids actually enjoyed it rather than the other way around. So I think that's very interesting. States before traits, always. Whatever whatever you have in your arsenal that makes kids feel good, that makes them excited, that has them reporting fun, do that first. Then be the celebrator of them within that play space by asking them how you can support them in their endeavor to do the thing that they like doing the most. It's actually very, very simple. And I think, you know, you, you, you bring up a good point. I would imagine most coaches listening to this probably do it exactly opposite. For sure. I've been guilty of it as well. Absolutely. It's a big point. Or you talked about one game within Discover Golf. I know you have a lot of games and I'm sure you're constantly developing and changing activities and games within your program. But if people wanted to find out more about Discover Golf, what would be the best place for them to find more about your programs? Yeah, discovergolf.co, not com, .co. You know, we've we've tried to, you know, it's it's a difficult thing, right, to articulate. I mean, that that was a an hour of, I mean, I don't know how many different dimensions of coaching or different perspectives on what coaching could be or should be or the theory behind it, but you know, we covered 30 different far ranging topics that, you know, it's the blessing and the curse of discover golf, right? Is that there's a lot that goes into it. Um, in the past, I've tried my best to reflect on all of those dimensions. I think for the sort of lay coach or, you know, just dipping their toe in parent, that's a lot to consume. So I've tried to make the website very much just about the games, uh, the games that are for sale, a description about the game, some video, uh, of the games. There's written rules for all the games that you can just PDF and download. So you can have those for yourself or your, your student or your son or daughter. So yeah, discovergolf.co. And then if, uh, you know, a lot of coaches or parents, you know, will just send me an email and say, you know, if, if I just want to get started with four or five and I've got a bunch of six-year-old girls and I've got a couple 12-year-old boys that are semi-competitive, uh, I mean, that's really where we shine is the ability to have uh, multiple games for not only age, gender, but personality style. 
Very cool. I mean, you, your games and programs make me want to play golf more and participate in the activities and games that you've created. So that I'm sure kids will absolutely love That's it. The nicest thing anybody can say to me. I appreciate that. Of course. And I'm going to, I have two more questions for you. The first one is a personal one, which is how do you feel as a golf coach and as a person now compared to how you felt, let's just say 10 years ago when you were coaching golf or coaching junior golf the other way? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I touched on that a little bit where I feel like now I, I bring to my students the most authentic version of me. And so I think the fact that I implore our students to lose a sense of self, right? To lose track of time, to fully give in to the, this premise that we always talk about, the magic circle, right? Within this sort of sacred space, you're allowed to be who you want to be. You can be silly, you can be harmonious, you can be hostile, you can concentrate, you can mess up, you can, uh, you, you can triumph, you can do anything that you want, you can be anybody that you want, you can explore different selves, you can, you, you can just be who you feel like being in that second. I think I'm only able to genuinely give that to my students because I live my life like that now. And so as I've matured and grown more comfortable with who I am, uh, I'm better able to implore my students to, to take that sort of journey for themselves. So the job of coaching kids and the administrative function and the staffing and the long hours and the sunburns and the boo-boos and, and, and all the other stuff that goes into coaching big scale junior programs is never going to change. It is damn hard work. And so I always am living with um, a little bit of stress and um, you know, a little, a little bit of aches and pains and, and tiredness. So that stuff never goes away. But um, you know, at the core level, I just feel much more content with who I am and, and I'm better able to transmit that energy to my kids. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's great. What would be your final words of inspiration for raising golfers? We get we got to it a bunch today. I would say just be a, an ardent supporter of environments that make your kids curious, make them impressed with themselves, make them feel independent, support them as they go through those environments, love them unconditionally. They want to put the club down, put the damn club down, throw balls, kick balls. Don't make, don't have a predetermined viewpoint of what it should be or where it should end. Just let the joy of play meander in, in its own course and just, just love every minute of it. Awesome. No pun intended, but what you've talked about today is an absolute game changer, not just for myself, but I'm sure for a lot of the listeners. So Richard, thank you so much for coming on today, sharing your experience and knowledge and giving us a completely different perspective of junior golf. Travis, it was, uh, it was really my pleasure. And, uh, thanks for making the effort to, uh, to get this done. And I, I appreciate your work bringing on all the voices. It's, it's an important subject and in the world of, you know, high, uh, MOI drivers and tour driven stuff and, uh, elite coaching. It, it's sometimes a, a muted tone somewhere in the background, but um, there's enough people fighting the good fight. It's, uh, it, it's an amazing thing. So thank you for your work. Cool. Thank you. 
All right, that was Truth Spoken there from Richard Franklin. It's clear how passionate he is about junior golf and the importance of play. I love how he talks about each game having a sense of randomness and chance, and that the games take away the idea of just hitting balls on the range over and over. For parents and coaches listening, try to create some fun games at home or during practices that aren't just make 10 putts in a row from six feet. Also make sure to check out Richard's products on discovergolf.co and change the way that you are developing your juniors in the game of golf. This episode was a game changer for me and I hope it was for you as well. Go out there, have fun, play, 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 and play some more. If you enjoy listening to our podcast and the information you got from this episode, do us a favor and continue to support us by hitting that subscribe button and giving us a five-star review. Your continued support will help us continue to grow and be able to interview some of the most experienced parents, coaches, and players in the golf industry to help you continue to raise your golfer to their full potential.